Welcome to the Women of Washington In-Depth, digital services sponsored by Booz Allen Hamilton. Here is today's moderator, Gigi Shum. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are Renee Wynn, Chief Information Officer, NASA. Dorothy Aronson, Chief Information Officer, National Science Foundation. Vicki Hildebrand, Chief Information Officer, Department of Transportation. Dr. Kelly Fletcher, Acting Chief Information Officer, Department of Navy. And Julie McPherson, Senior Vice President, Booz Allen. Welcome, ladies. So we're gonna talk today about the digital workforce, and I'm gonna set some context. McKinsey just released a report called Harnessing the Power of Digital in U.S. Government Agencies. It's a good news, bad news situation. McKinsey estimates that the world's governments could save $3.5 trillion a year by 2021 if they match the productivity gains that leading countries have made in four functions, one of which is digital technology and data analytics. They go on to say that, quote, through digital transformations, agencies can integrate cutting edge technologies, such as cloud, mobile, ad, uh, artificial intelligence and automation, and modern management techniques, for instance, agile software development, to dramatically improve services and outcomes for constituents. That's the good news. The bad news is that they say the US government entities trail organizations and other sectors in adopting digital technologies and approaches. They believe the reason for the shortfall is due to four reasons. Cumbersome and bureaucratic internal rules and procedures, scarce funding for technology projects, a narrow perspective on individual functions and customer touch points, and a shortage of digital native talent. So Renee, we'll start with you. With that as a backdrop, how is NASA dealing with some of these challenges? I think what you've laid out for us, Gigi, is, is the same thing the government has always had for decades, and that is, is is recruiting the right talent for the position. And I think it begins with the hiring official at first, so I'll just call that me. And that is, is recognizing that the position you have to fill is not the position you just got vacated, right? And so you need to look at what do you need to do to go forward and then recruit the right person to do that. And in the federal government, recruiting has a few challenges, but at NASA what I did is I brought a couple of things to bear in the recruiting area, which opens up the aperture for the number of applicants that I get into it. So first of all, NASA doesn't suffer uh, from a number of people applying to our positions. Uh, we do some pretty tremendous things for this planet and things off this planet as well. Um, but the first thing I like to do is look at where you recruit and I've used Dice.com and Women in Technology and what it has done is for every um, every vacancy we've had to fill, we've had um, at least 50 people apply to it and then that way you get a nice cross section of diversity as well as skills and then you can make a selection of what you're really going to fit into that position that will take you forward today and into tomorrow. So as long as we don't fill a position with just today in mind, it can allow the federal government to begin making the advances necessary one position at a time. So that's interesting. It's the concept really of evolving the role mm -hmm. as it vacates and you then have the opportunity to fill it. Um, Vicki, you're new in your role. Mm -hmm. um, have you seen that done in, in your past? Absolutely. I think one of the challenges is, to echo what Renee said, is to not be catching up but to actually think beyond that and think about leapfrogging. What technologies are on the horizon and who's looking at them and how can we um, investigate those? We don't want to be catching up. There's no such thing as a five-year plan in the world of IT. None of us know what's going to be happening in five years. None of us. Well, that is a great point. So, Dorothy, how are you at the National Science Foundation recruiting, especially, I mean, talk about innovation. You guys are all about innovation. How are you recruiting for the skill set that you may need two, three, five years down the road? Well, like Renee, I think the mission of the National Science Foundation really draws people. So we never have problems, I think, getting uh, a large pool of candidates to choose from. Um, the IT workforce at the National Science Foundation is made up of both federal employees and contractors, and I think that's an important concept here because the federal employees have a different role. They don't have to be the, um, they have to understand the ever-changing nature of IT, and they have to be flexible and 
uh, ready to move with the changes and embrace the changes as Vicky said uh, but they don't have to know the specific technologies so uh, what we've done is we have a very solid uh, vision for how we're moving forward um, and the feds coming in are coming because they want to make the world a better place. They see solving the big problems of government as part of that uh, enticement. And um, because we have a flexible management structure, a lot of them appreciate that um, although the government has a, a, a history, say, of being um, staunchy, um, you know, we try to create uh, an agile work environment and one that the people love coming to work and love because they're inspired. So they love what they're doing and um, whether that's a specific cloud project or something else, I mean, they don't care what the thing is as long as they're working towards the common mission and the common good. So, you know, Julie, I'm going to come to you. you. You're at Booz Allen, so you're on the private sector side, but you get the opportunity to work with a lot of different government agencies. When you think about digital transformation, whether it's inside the government or in the private sector, how much of that do you think is about the technology itself and, and the specific skills around mobile or around artificial intelligence or maybe around blockchain? And how much is it really the approach, things like agile software development or containerization? Right. I think that's a great question because in truth, a lot of the workforce trends that we talk about and we're dealing with today are aspirations that we've had for many, many years, right? And it's the technology changes that are really allowing us to implement some of these transformational objectives across the organization. Um, one of the things that, that's most exciting, so to answer your question, I'd say it's a good mix, right? I think it's a healthy balance of both of those because we're able to see new um, solutions emerge in the way that we do work because the technology has changed so dramatically. And that's exciting when you can blend both perspectives um, in problem solving. So have any of you all throw this open in any of your agencies, have you moved to an agile computing environment? Absolutely. Yes, 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 everybody, yes. Yes, well. yes, yes. Okay, yes, yes. okay. Can I go back on one thing, Gigi? Sure. And Julie, you reminded me of this. Is One of the things is, as federal le leaders, and you've got four of them here, we get to also make decisions about contracting and bringing on task orders or something along that. That is another way for us to augment our talent um, or add to our talent and say, hey, I've got one person that does this, but boy, I need a team to complete this particular task. That's one of the things that we forget about in the federal government is, is that part of what we get to bring to bear is also the complement from our contractor work staff as well. And so as Julie brings on some of her folks, she's thinking ahead, maybe she's got a few, few folks in blockchain and we could go and say, hey, we want to do some experimentation. We start a task order, all appropriate procurement uh, practices that we would do and then we can begin that because sometimes when we have a pilot or we do a practice we actually may not continue to do that and then we get the flexibility from the contractor workforce by not having to stay with that one and so I think that's one of the things that gets lost when you talk about federal workforce is the federal workforce is also filled with contractors who serve the federal government uh, just as uh, heartfelt as those of us that you consider civil servants. Can I Sure. I think Vicki maybe had something to I add did. to that. I just wanted to add to that point that I haven't been here very long, about five weeks, but I would like to see more of our intellectual property in the government because it looks to me like from the Department of Transportation that we are actually outsourcing a lot of that to our contractors. And from a taxpayer perspective, I think we could actually save some money and pull some of that intellectual property into the department and not have to rely quite as much on the contractors. That may be my agency or my department, but that's one of my observations. And Dorothy, what were you gonna add? Well, I forgot exactly, but I can follow on. <laughs> well, here's the thing. that What Vicki said about intellectual property is true. The, the real value of one of the main values that the Fed workforce, part of the workforce, brings is the, is the knowledge of the intimate knowledge of the business, of the agency, and um, the quirks, the culture of the agency. Um, the, the, the National Science Foundation contractors also do have though a zealous commitment to the mission so um, what they bring is um, 
the, the more recent skills. And I think as Renee was saying, you know, you can bring in a specialist very quickly. So if a technology emerges and you bring in the knowledge that you need to stimulate the technology, whereas the it, the intellectual property that we own is really left behind in the uh, and is embedded in the process. So um, someone else might be building the uh, auto dev deploy process. So that might be a contractor, but the person who inherits it is the federal workforce. And so we we I agree with you that it's important to have those skills, but also that. Uh, at National Science Foundation, we try very hard to engage the contractors as family, as part of our family, and 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 get because that's where the most of the younger people, uh, early career um, people, are coming from. You know, come more frequently in in through that uh, venue. So Kelly, in the Department of Navy, um, do you use uh, contractors for emerging skill sets? And if so, are you able to maybe do some, one of the things that occurs to me is you might be able to do some knowledge transfer to the government employees. What's, what's been your experience at Navy? Right, so absolutely, we use contractors. Um, right now we're really trying to move to using, buying IT as a commodity. Um, so this is one way that contractors are helping us so that we're not, we're not reproducing things that are easily available commercially, right? So we're using contractors for that and also to help us get there with our legacy technologies. So we really want to modernize our legacy systems to make them so we can host them commercially. Um, we can take advantage of benefits of moving to commercial. So you brought up legacy systems, and you know, everything I read, I mean, there was a GAO report that agencies are spending at least 75% of their IT budgets maintaining legacy systems. So how are you finding ways to innovate, given that three quarters of your budget can be to maintain an old system? How are you able to innovate? Renee, I'll, I'll throw that your way. So um, at NASA, there's legacy systems that we need to keep because those are the operating systems for our satellites that have been launched or put on the chalkboard back in the 60s. So I cannot bring that back in order to do an operating system upgrade. Um, plus, it's capturing some pretty amazing, amazing scientific data. So let's put that legacy side on IT onto one side. On the other side is that if you articulate your plan of where you need to take the system in question, then you work in sprints and start to just bring that up to date and capture as much as you can. But before you even get to the system that you want to do is you also take a look at your highest risk. And what is that risk presenting to you? Is it solely a cybersecurity risk because your software is out of date? Um, or is it a financial risk because all of a sudden the vendor is no longer going to support it and now You've got risk associated cybersecurity, but also to the expense of not doing it in a more real-time basis instead of an, uh, you end up doing it in a more urgent case, which does sort of drive up those costs. So you do have to have a good sense of your inventory, where it is in the risk category. And for NASA, the next one is, is where, can you actually change that legacy system because you would impact the mission? Um, and so we take a look at that, and we're spending a lot of time in our administrative systems. Uh, they were a lot of homegrown ones, and so that's, that's where our biggest bang for the buck is right now. And so, Julie, how would you uh, advise government agencies to balance that legacy versus new systems, not only from a budget perspective, but also from a skill set perspective among their workforce? Well, I love um, Renee's example. It sort of puts legacy into perspective and why legacy is such an important part of our environment today, and you can't just throw it away. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that um, we're seeing organizations actually look across their enterprise and come up with ways to rethink the way that they're doing business so that it's not a system-by-system system sort of modernization. It's really a what is on the horizon six months, a year from now that's a bit more transformational? And spend time thinking about recreating platforms instead of recreating systems, right? What are the new experiences? How do I better get data so that I can serve my citizens? Um, and with that frame of mind, I think you end up in a different place when you think about transformation and modernization. I see a lot of heads nodding. Vicki, you have experience with that? Absolutely. Um, we need to focus on shared services. So no one has yet said shared services and that's so important because at least in, in the Department of Transportation we still have 
different agencies doing the same thing and spending money that we can save. And then you can take those savings and push those into innovation. But I also agree with Julie's point because um, I was just invited to a meeting the other day about a brand new application, a brand new independent application which could easily be a service as part of a platform that already exists. Savings, speed, efficiency, quality, all better in a, in a more um, flexible model. And Kelly, I saw you nodding your head as well. What, what's your experience at the Navy? Right, so we're, we've moved to shared services across the Department of the Navy, um, and we're, we're a huge enterprise, and we've seen big savings by doing that. So sharing infrastructure, and then as we move to commercial products, moving up the stack, right? So then we're really just providing the very unique stuff that we need is the only things that we're going to build. And at the National Science Foundation? Yes, it's the same. Uh, the Whatever we can use as a shared service or a COTS product, is what is that's our preference. And that way we can spend this, this specific, the, the scarce commodity of the, of the uh, application development dollar on things that are very specific to the National Science Foundation. Um, if I could bring the conversation back a little bit to legacy systems, um, I don't think really that because of the security risk, other than the satellites and some things that are maybe, you know, uh, un unreachable, um, I feel like we don't have the option of having a legacy system that's really made up of an old technology. So that whole concept, you know, uh, in the 80s you might have a legacy, a legacy you know, you would, it might have been developing something in COBOL on some rickety old HP something or other. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Am I touching? Did I touch an open wound? But but we don't have well, because Vicky spent what about 35, 35 years at HP. But that's okay. I, I, started, I, started, building, I started building on HP 3000 also. So and and uh, but but I think that those systems we they, we couldn't secure them today. So we there's no way we could have a legacy system that's really. Um, uh, a, a year 1800. I don't know how far I'd go back to go. <laughs> um, technology, 1950s. but 1950s technology. Thank exactly. you. Um, so uh, you know there is no such thing, um, and this really ties together agile development for me anyway at National Science Foundation because the components, as we modernize, we we eliminate the legacy systems. So the dollars, it's not one or the other. It's not like we're building some new part of the business process. The business process has been automated for years and years. So the legacy systems, as we modern, as we build new things, we're actually taking away the legacy things. The agile development process is integrated among all of them. So s large systems that were built with what used to be called the waterfall process, the preceding technologies, um, those have evolved over into the uh, agile framework as well and they're working in sprints and they have to because they're giving up parts of their technology for the modern they're 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 trading um, and also this goes to the legacy the, the incumbent knowledge then the person who understood that business process the in the legacy system is now being used to develop the new system because they're transferring their business knowledge over to the development side of the house and that keeps the the integration of legacy and new development is so important um, also for keeping the workforce engaged. You're never stuck in some um, software maintenance shop. Yeah, you're you, the COBOL guy. You get to be everything. You know, you get to try the new things along with the old things, the new processes. At National Science Foundation, we took a whole year, we took a, the whole staff at one, one year a couple of years ago and trained them all in agile development across the board. It wasn't as if we took just the development team or just you know, or just the legacy team. Everyone learned the same language at the same time, and they came back ready to transform their business units into working in that um, in that style. And it took longer, certainly, for the legacy people to pick that up. Um, uh, but they learned from the modern the uh, contract staff that brought that came came in with a lot of knowledge and a lot of uh, eagerness to try those technologies. And it was also a way of drawing the the right talent into the workforce. My guests today are Renee Wynn, CIO NASA, Dorothy Aronson, CIO National Science Foundation, Vicki Hildebrand, CIO Department of Transportation, Dr. Kelly Fletcher, Acting CIO Department of Navy, and Julie McPherson, Senior Vice President Booz Allen. I'm your moderator, Gigi Shum, on the panel discussion, Women of Washington Digital Workforce. 
sponsored by Booz Allen Hamilton on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Booz Allen Hamilton. We're a world leader in applying modern technologies that are revolutionizing healthcare, protecting our nation against crippling cyber attacks, and making government more accessible to citizens by opening up its data and modernizing its digital systems. How do we do it? Through open, collaborative methods such as DevOps and Agile that bring technology and people together. Booz Allen Hamilton, technology leadership, agile innovation, digital transformation. Learn more at boozallen.com. Welcome back to the panel discussion, Women of Washington, Digital Workforce, sponsored by Booz Allen Hamilton on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. My guests today are Renee Wynn, CIO NASA, Dorothy Aronson, CIO National Science Foundation, Vicki Hildebrand, CIO Department of Transportation, Dr. Kelly Fletcher, Acting CIO Department of Navy, and Julie McPherson, Senior Vice President Booz Allen. I'm your moderator, Gigi Shum. So we're going to continue our discussion about a digital workforce and in this segment talk a lot about how we, your agencies are attracting people with the right skill set. Again, I'm going to set a little context here for you. A study of federal leaders conducted last year by the National Academy of Public Administration and ICF International found that over half of those asked, and these are federal employees that they're asking, believe they're not keeping up with innovation in the private sector. The answers weren't surprising, lack of sufficient budgets, security concerns, slow acquisition procedures, some of the things that we talked about last segment. But a third of the respondents also cited lack of employees with current digital skills as a reason. The article goes on to say the government is competing for tech talent using hiring and pay processes that were designed in the 50s for a workforce that was mostly clerical. So again and again, I hear when I talk to people in the federal government, and I heard it in segment one, that one of the best tools that the government has for recruiting is their mission. So I'd be really interested to hear how you're using that mission to attract new talent. And Renee, I'm not going to start with you <laughs> because you play the NASA card. So instead, <laughs> Kelly, I'll go down with, to you with Department of Navy. Yeah, so I think um, in the cyber and IT space, there are things that we're doing in Department of Defense that you can't do anywhere else, full stop. I think there's no argument about that. And we have contractors doing some of those activities, but some of the activities are actually limited to government folks. So I think that's a big draw for us. One thing we're also doing is we're using direct hire authority. So that allows us to hire people not through our regular hiring channels. That's actually how I joined the federal government. Um, and I think it's a great opportunity for folks who want to be involved. Um, they can get hired through you know, job fairs, through a variety of ways that's not you know, going to usajobs.com. And Vicki, how about at Department of Transportation? Well, I'm still learning um, about our processes. But um, if you think about the Department of Transportation, it's an agency or department that a lot of people know about, right? There are a lot of drivers on the road. Everyone has to go to a DOT. Uh, the Federal Aviation Administration is very visible to people. And the Secretary's vision is to be the safest, most modern transportation economy in the world. So we're trying to use that mission to reach out to people in the private sector and really get them excited about moving the department forward. So that's one of the things that we're doing. So are you working on any innovative projects? You know, we hear things about self-driving cars, and you always yes. hear about that with, you know, in respect to the private sector. What's Department of Transportation doing with some of these, like, leading-edge kind of transportation technologies? We are in the thick of it. We just had a, a big meeting a couple of days ago um, around automated vehicles, and we had private sector people, and we had governments and cities in. And it's very exciting what's happening with automated vehicles, bimodal, not just cars, semis, buses, and trains. I mean, it's, it's really anything that moves on, on surface or water. And, um, and then the other thing, of course, which we're all hearing about is drones. Right. right. We've got a lot going on with drones. And this is a reason I want to get some of the money out of some of the legacy and back-end services so that we can do this kind of innovation. Those certainly seem like interesting areas that, you know, uh, maybe a millennial would want to work on. Absolutely. Okay, Renee. All right, so I want to I add to, to what Vicki's doing at Department of Transportation because I want to remind folks about the really cool things the United States government gets to do. So what's going on in partnership right now, private sector with the federal government, is thinking about 
urban transportation. I am a uh, major Amazon Prime user. I cannot wait until that package is coming and going by drone. Think of the traffic issues we then will be facing in an urban environment if my packages and my pizza <laughs> and I am being delivered by the drone. We have now gone from a terra firma platform associated with traffic management. Air traffic management has always been separated and the two will come together in an urban environment I hope in my lifetime. And so we have to, as a federal government, jump in front of this and so that your next Google map will take a look at how could I get from place to place by terra firma, by air, or something in between uh, that we're gonna have to call that. The other piece associated with that is we've relied on cars to stay on the ground and airplanes to stay in their airspace. Now they're gonna be flying above our buildings at floor six and seven. What information they're going to be seeing that have been protected by gates that are no longer protected by our windows and that, and so it really changes how we keep uh, appropriate secrets, uh, how we maintain private information, and we've got to be thinking about this stuff now. So if you want to work on really cool stuff, definitely want to go to the Department of Transportation because they can, they're taking a look at this stuff now. We have an opening for you. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's so cool to get to work on that and imagine, and you go to your whiteboard or chalkboard, whatever it is nowadays, and you get to do it, but you're working with the private sector in this one because that's where the economy piece is really going to change. So we really can't talk about hiring without talking about the question of diversity. We are a, this is a woman of Washington show and we're an all woman panel, which is wonderful. But you know, one of the challenges I think that exists if we don't embrace diversity in our organization is that we're only drawing from half the population, if we're talking about gender diversity, half the population uh, when we're trying to hire. Uh, yet at the same time, it can be a little bit of a double-edged sword if that you've got an opening and you're, it's a critical opening and you're trying to get it filled and you're having to worry about you know, diversity in the organization and, and quotas and things like that. So uh, Julie, let me come to you. I mean, what sure. do you see in terms of um, the way that diversity intersects with hiring for these critical new skill sets? So I think that, um, first of all, we're, we're so committed to diversity. Um, we just kicked off our uh, Digital Women Leaders Network across the firm last week, and it's awesome to see so many people come together who are passionate, women and men, right, and understanding the value proposition of a diverse workforce. The thing that I, I've, I've found most important is not to deal with diversity at the line of scrimmage, right? When you're thinking about quotas, when you're making decisions, I don't think anybody ends up feeling good at the end of the day, right? So for us, it's a much about thinking about it in the pipeline and making sure that you've got the right people at the right levels all the way through your organization, both in hiring, but also in promotions and in giving them opportunities. And so taking a really end-to-end -end view of what your profile is and making sure you're thinking about it has been, I think, the biggest benefit we've seen when we think about you know, making sure diversity is, is part of our decision-making process. Well, and you wouldn't know it from this brilliant panel, but it's hard when you're talking about STEM jobs because if you look at the numbers of females and minorities in STEM uh, who've, who've got STEM education, the numbers aren't great. So, Dorothy, the National Science Foundation, what are you doing to recruit a well, diverse workforce? STEM is a subject area that the National Science Foundation really focuses on. Um, but apart from that, because we're a sub, you know, we're not a research branch of the organization. Um, uh, I think that I don't think of women as the part of the workforce that's not included at this point. Um, <laughs> do you guys? <laughs> um, so, but uh, I actually think. Well, you know, I, I'll jump in. Right, not on this panel for sure. <laughs> no, I mean, Again, but, but you know, if you look across the board at numbers, particularly as you increase uh, levels in an organization and go up into you know higher and higher into management to, and this is private sector obviously as well as public sector all the way up to board seats. I mean, there definitely is. Okay. you know, a disparity there. I, I believe you, although, again, it's not true at the National Science Foundation. We're led by women, you know, so, but I, I understand, for me, diversity is not about sex or, uh, it's about everything. You know, you don't recognize the value of each individual because, unless you consider their differences, you, you're blind. 
um, it's almost like uh, people are speaking different languages when they come from different backgrounds. And the problem uh, I'm having is not with diversity, it's making sure that we're inclusive and making sure that you do hire people that are different than you. Um, which is why I guess the female issue doesn't affect me. What affects me is making sure that all the other people that are, that you know, where you don't recognize their value, their, their contribution, because they're not speaking to you in a way that resonates with you. Um, I came into the workforce, you know, in the 80s when there was a glass ceiling. Women couldn't advance. Um, I just don't sense that anymore. Um, so, you know, the world keeps changing, but there's a ceiling for someone. Uh, and I'm always trying to figure out who it is that we're excluding uh, now. So Kelly, how, how about you at the Department of Navy? How are you dealing with uh, diverse hiring and, and attracting all, you know, to, to Dorothy's points, all, all kinds of people? Yeah, so I actually really agree with Dorothy. I like, I like the way that you frame that. Um, because when I look for diversity, it's not gender specific, absolutely. Um, it's for us what we're what we're doing right now with our IT workforce is we're we've taken away the requirement for certain credentials. We've said we're really interested in your experience, whether that's military experience, professional experience. We're interested in your education. Um, we want to be confident that you can achieve that credential, but you don't need to have it walking in the door. And I think that's really broadened the scope of the people that we can hire. Um, so I want to go to places that we don't normally look to hire. So in, in for the Department of the Navy, we frequently do hire vets, and I think that's great. Um, but I think that shouldn't be the only people we hire, right? Because then again, we're an echo chamber, and I think that's kind of what you described. So let's talk about creative approaches to attracting new talent. Are any of you experiencing a, a different way of recruiting, maybe the early stage workforce, maybe some of these digital natives? A couple of things that we're doing differently. One is we created a program that is focused on university students, and we call it our summer games program. So we um, put together challenges, and we form teams that are diverse in nature, and they actually go through a 16-week experience where they're problem solving. And we crowdsource some of the hardest problems that our clients are facing across the missions, and then we form teams against them. And they go through this, this curriculum where they're actually problem solving interviewing, prototyping, building, and then at the end they're competing for prizes. And I say that because that is a very um, interesting way to differentiate, differentiate your talent. Um, one, you get to see what they bring to the table. They get to experience what you offer them. And when they go back to their colleges, right, they talk about the amazing things that they spent their summer doing with us. So that's been something that's been exciting for me inside the organization and has really helped us show up differently in the marketplace. I think the federal government has to get more creative about how it recruits. Um, I haven't seen anything like this, but this is a fabulous we can do idea. It. We can do it. It's a fabulous <laughs> idea because young people today are thinking about their careers differently and their expectations for a job are different than they were when I entered the workforce. And I think we have to get a little bit more creative about how we reach out to them and, and what we offer them. There's got to be some flexibility. I have two millennials of my own, and one of them, actually they're both in, in the world of technology, and one of them just assumes he's gonna go hike a mountain in the morning and then go to work in the afternoon. And he's a terrific contributor, but his company allows him to do that. Well, Vicki, I think that's a great point, right? I asked the question about attracting talent, but attracting is half the battle. It's as important that the um, the workforce that you, or the the environment that you create is a good fit for the millennials and what they're looking for too, and whether that be maybe some different work hours or a different way of interacting with colleagues. Um, Renee, what are you seeing? You, you, I'm sure you hire lots of millennials at NASA. <laughs> yes, um, NASA is doing, I think, very well when it comes to recruiting for different folks. We had the largest application pool that we had, 18,300 for our recently announced uh, astronaut class, and they come from a number of different uh, both uh, backgrounds as well as uh, we had some folks that have served in the military as well and and we look at our astronaut cadet our astronaut cadre right now they are very very diverse uh, in terms of their disciplines how they approach problem solving um, their backgrounds and everything like that so it, at NASA one of the things we try to do is definitely get out there um, our brand is pretty well known uh, it, it <laughs> with that and also each of us as NASA employees 
really are a, an arm of our, our um, public face, public service face. I, I, for me, I'm handing out NASA pins and patches um, and stickers on a regular basis to invite children to think about science, the STEAM. Actually, I look at it as STEAM, and arts and design is also part of that because robotics now are interfacing with humans. The way robotics were 10 years ago, they didn't have as much of an interface. And for NASA, that's a safety issue. And we do have a robot, uh, robot on board of space station from the Japanese space agency. And that interaction has to be very has to be designed as humans interact, and the robots are moving that direction. Uh, but that's how we look at it: is is we have a responsibility to make sure that the great business of NASA is known, and we also share that when we're out in the public. Uh, we do a lot of contests, uh, space tech. Uh, I do some data knots. It's how to use uh, data from NASA and that, and so we're always out engaging with the public to ensure that we've sparked the imagination to the next generation. My guests today are Renee Wynn, CIO NASA, Dorothy Aronson, CIO National Science Foundation, Vicki Hildebrand, CIO Department of Transportation, Dr. Kelly Fletcher, Acting CIO Department of Navy, and Julie McPherson, Senior Vice President Booz Allen. I'm your moderator, Gigi Shum, on the panel discussion, Women of Washington, Digital Workforce, sponsored by Booz Allen Hamilton on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. We live in a world where change happens in an instant. At Booz Allen, we thrive on change. It inspires us to build solutions that redefine what's possible. Our clients trust us to solve their most difficult problems. We bring together people who crave the big challenges and are passionate about solving them. Are you one of those problem solvers? Together, we can find the answers that change the world. Take your next step at boozallen.com forward slash careers. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are Renee Wynn, CIO NASA, Dorothy Aronson, CIO National Science Foundation, Vicki Hildebrand, CIO Department of Transportation, Dr. Kelly Fletcher, Acting CIO, Department of Navy, and Julie McPherson, Senior Vice President, Booz Allen. Welcome back, ladies. So in this segment, we're gonna talk about some of the interesting trends in software development that you guys are seeing and how you're addressing those. So let me start with you, Vicki, because you've spent literally your entire career uh, in private sector, most, you know, almost 30 some years at HP, right? What lessons have you learned there that you can now bring to the Department of Transportation? I guess the first one that comes to mind is that things can be done quickly. Speed is possible. Uh, we took a $110 billion company two years ago and broke it into two and then divested another 40% and then divested another 10% all in the last two years. And we did that while we were going through a shared services conversion and it didn't take a whole lot of time and money to accomplish it. And I, I see much longer schedules here in the government than are necessary. So that's, that's really the, the biggest thing, is that speed is possible. You can empower people. Um, there's all kinds of techniques to build things and deploy them quickly and get things done. So Julie, I see you nodding your head. Sounds like you agree that, um, that some speed can be brought from the private sector to the public sector. Yeah, I, I mean, we were just chatting a little bit about like, part of this process is retraining yourself to think differently about what can be done, right? A lot of times I think we face problems and we think about what our experience has been in the past and how we've solved that problem in the past. And all of those rules don't apply in the future. And so there are really creative ways to leapfrog again um, how you solve problems. The idea of coming together as hackathons to solve problems, right? Exposing data, using open solutions and not feeling like you have to build everything yourself. Those are accelerants for the way problems get solved today in the business. Dorothy, how about you? Um, I think one of the things that's important is to get the whole team focused on the objective. So we're much more um, powerful when we know what, what the strategy is. And so, and that goes to having support from above um, so that we have consistent, uh, a, a consistent path forward. Often a project will start and stop and start and stop. But, but if we can get good, solid leadership support, governance, um, and focus our attentions, and then engage the workforce's hearts 
in accomplishing the mission. So even if the mission is to consolidate, the more people we have wanting that for the common good, the more uh, creative ideas will come to the group. Um, And uh, I find our group can move very quickly if they know where they want to go. So what are some of the top skills, either technical skills or otherwise, that your agencies are looking for now? Renee, I'll ask you first. I think from the CIO perspective, definitely data scientists in that regard because we've got a ton of data. Big data is actually a little small for us. And so we've got to figure out, and, and we bring that data in by mission type and we've got to be able to start looking across that information we look at some of the administrative processes hr information financial information i got to start connecting that up as well and go through these lines of business and say what's that nugget in order to be able to do xyz faster or deal with better protecting information from a cyber perspective and so the data scientists would be incredibly helpful to have but it doesn't we need core set of data scientists, then there's a lot of folks that are really good data analysts. We can help bring them along by partnering them with some of the newer uh, trains of thought, the, the data scientists that are trained in that, and so then you can get going faster with some of the things. So sometimes it's a blend of bringing in some new talent with your con- uh, existing talent and getting them to see, as Dorothy said, a new direction in order to solve sur- for some great problems. Kelly, how about you? What What is the Navy looking for in terms of skill sets? What are some of the top skills you are recruiting for? Yeah, so I would, I would reiterate data scientists, actually. But I see the problem as being both I need folks who are experts in um, data architecture, data standards, the sort of IT side of data science. And then I also need folks who can take this huge amount of data and help consolidate it, whittle it down, and give me something that I can show to a decision maker and say, hey, here are the facts, now let's make a decision. And that's where I see some of our, our current folks who understand you know, what are the decisions we need to make, what is our decision space. They can help get our new folks, who are these data scientists, to, to get us to take the data we have and make it meaningful, right? And this is something we're struggling with. Dorothy, how about uh, you at NSF? I I agree with both of these ladies. uh, And I think that what we need to do is take it even one step further, which is uh, collecting the data and doing the technology with it, but also the adoption of the technology of the analytics tools to the workforce. So, and, and more and more individuals have questions that they want to answer. So our job as IT people is to get the data and expose it, but also to provide the simple to use tools and you know ensure that the data that they take is authentic you know is the right data um, and so it's there's a lot of customer service and training involved in what we do um, the the IT itself isn't useful unless people can then use it the same is true with application development I think that we see more and more people who have enough skills and enough tools on their phone to develop a little app if we would provide them a way of getting to the functionality so we've developed a lot of um, API's uh, uh, interfaces between the more complex programs so that uh, end users with their own development tools can grab that those are really important things to free up our the the technology people to do the technology, the more complicated work and let the end users create their own um, way of accessing it. Um, So it's a different style of software development though when you're thinking about an end user population that's actually going to have a role in in how they use the data, right? And that, I I assume that that might be on mobile devices, you know, uh, so how has that changed sort of the um, the process of software development? Well, we focus very much on, I mean, from an application perspective, we focus on capturing data and protecting it um, and validating it. Uh, So we have a program that just validates transactions, for example. And if you, uh, in theory, this hasn't been tested yet, but in theory, if you want to access the program to validate your data, you can do that. Um, We make these uh, pieces of software available to the public uh, through, you know, through and 
so we also, we use them extensively within our own organization so that the look and feel of the applications is consistent, uh, the rules applied when capturing data are, are consistent, and things like that. Um, reusing code is very important. So the developers who are do doing their thing are thinking in terms of cap uh, tiny bits uh, of uh, intelligence that they store and then anyone uh, can use them. Vicky? I want to emphasize mobility. So as we look at the skills for the next generation workforce, everything, absolutely everything, is going to be mobile. The monolithic data centers that we have today are going away. You think about edge computing, and we talked earlier about automated vehicles. You don't have time to send a signal back to a data center and then back to a, a vehicle. It's got to happen where that activity is taking place. Everything has to be on the edge and mobile, and I need people thinking about that as they pursue their career. It sounds like you're developing already for the Internet of Things. Oh, it's, that's a big piece of it, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Julie, I saw you uh, nod on that. Yeah, I wanted to just jump in um, on the, the fact that we are all in our personal lives used to having so much power at our fingertips, right? Everything we want, Amazon, shopping, pizza delivery. The, the opportunity to have that sort of user-focused experience on all of our workforce tools, I think, is really transformational. Again, it lets you think very differently about what can get done and what should get done. Um, having built systems for 20 years of my career, it gets really exciting to solve the individual problems. But if you're really taking a user, human-centered design focus to it, it becomes much clearer about what are the highest value tasks from a workforce perspective that need to be performed. So that's been a really exciting sort of transformation in technology. So how has that changed? You talked about human-centered experience, right? How has that changed the way you think about software design, where sort of back in the old days it was a system was designed to do a certain set of functions, and that was really took what the bulk of the design efforts and sort of how the users interacted with it was maybe a little bit of an afterthought. Yeah. Sounds like that's kind of now been flipped on its head. It totally has. And right now, I mean, the technology allows us to do completely modular design of our systems that are in what, what's called microservices. So they're really um, uh, interchangeable. As you're developing a service and you're defining it, if a new technology or a new solution comes out, you can plug and play those together very rapidly instead of having to redefine interfaces, um, which is absolutely transformational in the way that we're designing and building systems today. So when I talked about turning the process on its head, Vicki, I saw your head nodding. It seems like you've got some experience with that as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, you really do need, this is one of the reasons why I think the younger generation is, is where we want to tap some of our talent, because they know what good looks like. You do. You have to start with the outcome, and then you back up and figure out how to build it. But it's, it is, it's a complete reversal of the past. Renee, how about at NASA? So one of the things that we've done, so mission ops control, which we do do freezes. So we don't do updates when we're getting ready to do launch and there's certain sets so that we make sure that the entire ecosystem associated with the launch works well. But I was in a mission ops uh, center and what I noticed is, is that we also have the ability to change the way the screen works so that the individual who's got some pretty um, pretty significant responsibilities because of the human life associated with some of our launches, and that is that he or she can change the screen to look the way he or she wants it. And so this is where we need to go, is, is not be fed a design, this is the way your travel system ought to work, but how do I want it to look when it pops up on my screen so it works as I work best? And so we're beginning with our mission ops control, which does allow for the screen to look the way the user needs it to look in order for he or she to provide provide the best productivity, and frankly, at the end of that is the best safety. And so, Kelly, you sounds like you might have something to add, but specifically, you've got some unique challenges at the Navy because the workforce that you're designing for, you know, in addition to just being huge, is deployed all over the world, and, um, you know, mobile has got to be a part of it in some pretty hard-to-reach places like ships and subs and... Right. Absolutely, yeah. So for Marines and, and for our folks at sea, mobile is hugely important. What I was going to add on is um, I think it's really interesting to look at how um, for the Navy we're moving to this um, human-centered interfaces, right? I'm a human. I need to make decisions. I need to do activities. But I think a lot of what we do 
Um, I actually don't want a human in the loop. Um, a machine, it can be automated, right? And it, in fact, needs to be automated to be at the right speed and at the right pace. So while I both want my apps to be designed for a human to, to make sure that they're seeing everything they need to see when they're at sea and they're making decisions, I want a lot of decisions, especially in the cybersecurity space, to be automated. I, I don't want a human in the loop. And so I think we're designing systems to really address that that is how fast we need to make some decisions. So that brings uh, artificial intelligence into the mix. Mm -hmm. And um, that also relates to the big data. You know, you, you know, I think right now we're capturing data that will ultimately be used to help um, simulate decisions. Um, but we're not at a place yet where we're using uh, artificial intelligence really at, uh, you know, uh, at the forefront of what we're doing. But that would be something that I think is going to be evolving the next couple of years. We might actually see some um, of the work that's being done by people not now being done by machines. But we have to really be aggressive uh, on that in order to incorporate that. So Julie, we're going to let you have the last word here. Um, we're wrapping up, but as you think about the opportunity that are in front of the federal government in terms of uh, increasing the use of digital, increasing the use of mobile, putting the user experience first, what are a couple of pieces of advice that you would give not only the rest of the panel, but the rest of government as to you know, how they're going to get there from here? Uh, the, the thing that comes to my mind is um, this is a complex problem with lots of viewpoints from an ecosystem. And this isn't something that one organization, one company, one perspective can solve. So it really takes great minds like we have on the panel here today and across government to identify how we work together and how we traverse this really complex environment that's changing so rapidly to create all the shared outcomes, I think, that we've talked a lot about today. I'd like to thank today's guests, Renee Wynn, Chief Information Officer, NASA, Dorothy Aronson, Chief Information Officer, National Science Foundation, Vicki Hildebrand, Chief Information Officer, Department of Transportation, Dr. Kelly Fletcher, Acting Chief Information Officer, Department of Navy, and Julie McPherson, Senior Vice President, Booz Allen. I'm your moderator, Gigi Shum, and you're listening to Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsradio.com and search Women of Washington. Thank you for listening to the Women of Washington In-Depth, digital services sponsored by Booz Allen on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. The entire discussion can be found on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search Women of Washington.